The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 214. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back to the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. If you want to look for all those things, you can go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll find all my social media buttons. Just click on those, take you right out to them. You can subscribe that way or follow me or like me that way. Also, while you're there, give me an email address and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. So get that all free of charge. You can support The Brian McClanahan Show, though, by going to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll, but if you do enroll, you get the best deals on forthcoming courses. I have five courses available for purchase. If you want to use the coupon code PODCAST, you get those courses for 10% off. But not just that. I've got a new course coming out in a couple of weeks, two, three weeks, somewhere in there. Either end of March, early April, somewhere in that time period. It is on reconstruction and recreation. And if you are an if you are a subscriber enrolled to McClanahan Academy, you will get the best deal. It will be the best deal you will ever get on the class. No Black Friday deal is better. There's not another deal I will offer ever that's better than the deal that you'll get on launch time for that particular class. And the only people that are going to know about it are those people that are enrolled in McClanahan Academy. So you're going to want to do that, again, free of charge, so you can get the best deal. Now, you can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to brianmcclanahan.com, my webpage, forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You see the lights that are on if you're watching on YouTube, so you got that. Uh, but you can also support the show that way, and you can get all your McClanahan uh, Show gear at redbubble.com. Cups, shirts, skins for your electronic devices, stickers, wall plates, clocks, all kinds of cool stuff. Just go out to redbubble.com, do a search for my name, you got all my stuff. And of course, always you can subs- you can subscribe to uh, Learn True T R U E LearnTrueHistory.com. That is my affiliate link for Liberty Classroom, Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. You can see me there. I teach with Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, Brad Berzer, Jason Jewell, Bob Murphy, whole lot of great people that do some great stuff with economics, history, philosophy. It's deeper than just my history stuff. So you got other classes you can dive into at that. And of course, if you use my affiliate link, you help support the Brian McClanahan Show too. So. It's a win-win. You get a great deal, and you help out the show that you like. So all those things are a worthwhile cause. Now, this is actually a listener-generated show, and I tell you, if you want to send me an idea for a podcast, shoot it over to me. I'm always looking for ideas, always looking for something that you want to hear. Now, I don't always do them, and I may not always respond, but I do read your emails. So uh, if you want an idea, you got something that's cooking in your brain, you say, I got to hear McClanahan's take on this i got to hear what he has to say about this. Then shoot me the idea, and I'll, and I'll mull it over. This one came over that way via a request from a listener uh, through email. So you just go out to brianmcclanahan.com, and you do contact, and you can send me an email that way. Um, this one's great. It was actually uh, simply saying, look, would you cover Abraham Lincoln's Cooper Union address? Fantastic idea. Anytime I get to bash Honest Abe, it's always a good day on the Brian McClanahan show. So this one will be fun um, because I get to go through a primary document and criticize what Lincoln has to say and also put it within the context of the time. And I think that's, that's the important part of this speech. 
this is one of the most important speeches. Some people would say it's Lincoln's most important speech leading up to becoming president, the Cooper Union Address. Um, he planned it for a year. It took him a year to write this speech. And apparently uh, he studied and labored over it. This is what um, people said about it at the time. Um, maybe. I mean, I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe that's part of the Lincoln myth. But either way, I mean, if it is true, it took him a year to write this speech. He considered it to be his defining moment in terms of taking down his opponents, particularly on the issue of slavery extension. So I want to talk about some of the things that Lincoln and, and people, and I'm going to read the parts of the introduction that on this online. Um, it's abrahamlincolnonline.org. So just <laughs> knowing where I found the address, abrahamlincolnonline.org. You know that that's going to be a critical side of Abraham Lincoln, right? Yeah. Uh, this is going to be so laudatory, so pro-Lincoln, it'll be nauseating. And the introduction of the speech is just that. Uh, it's it's awful in terms of any type of objectivity. Um, they don't point out any of the inconsistencies, anything that he said. And in fact, everything that Lincoln said in this, you might as well just get on your knees and bow to the demigod, to the Washington God, and say, Lincoln, you are my master, you are correct. Uh, according to the person that wrote this uh, introduction. So I'm going to read parts of that because that's funny too. It'll make you laugh. And then I'm going to get into the speech and, and talk about where Lincoln was wrong, what he said was incorrect, things like that. Um, so there's a lot going on here. I want to dive into the speech. And the question essentially was, do you think that this speech set a standard, set an agenda that was carried forward, that there was somehow a, uh, a push? Could you see in Lincoln the recreation of America in this particular speech. Certainly, I mean, look, Lincoln uh, was no constitutional scholar. There's, there's no question about it. Lincoln had a very limited understanding of, of the original Constitution. Um, he, as James Byard called him, was an ordinary Western man who had no conceptions of our government. And this is what Byard said after listening to Lincoln. He said, this guy is stupid, essentially. He doesn't know anything. And I think when you look at this particular address, you'll, you can find that. He's fumbling around. He's searching. It took him a year to come up with this stuff. Now, I know that in 1859 and 1860, documents are not readily available then as they are now, but they did have Madison's notes. Those were published. Um, you had, you had, other, you had uh, Eliot's debates. Those have been published. So you had material out there that would uh, point to the, the original Constitution and the ratification of that, of that document. Of course, the Federalist essays were well known. All of this stuff was out there. And so uh, Lincoln had access to that material. Um, did he use it? That's the big question. And uh, the big question of the day is how accurate was Lincoln in this particular speech in terms of historical accuracy? So let's start um, from the introduction. The carefully crafted speech, carefully crafted, I mean, just exquisitely crafted, it's crafted speech, examined the views of the 39 signers of the Constitution. Lincoln noted that at least 21 of them, a majority, believed Congress should control slavery in the territories rather than allow it to expand. Um, that's not exactly what he's saying. He's saying they believe that Congress could control slavery in the territories. So they've already misinterpreted what Lincoln is actually saying in this particular speech. Thus, the Republican stance at the time was not revolutionary, 
that slimmer to the founding fathers and should not alarm Southerners, for radicals had threatened to secede if a Republican was elected president. Um, this uh, introduction continues. The last two paragraphs are the funniest things. Easily one of Lincoln's best efforts. It revealed his singular mastery of ideas and issues in a way that justified loyal support. Here we can see him pursuing facts, forming them into meaningful patterns, pressing relentlessly toward his conclusion. Um, I, don't, I don't see that. <laughs> I see a guy fumbling around trying to come up with something. It took him a year to fumble around. Uh, but, you know, his singular master, mastery of ideas and issues in a way that justified loyal support. Okay, uh, I, I don't know about that. With a deft touch, a deft touch. Lincoln exposed the roots of sectional strife and the inconsistent positions of Senator Stephen Douglas and Chief Justice Roger Taney. He urged fellow Republicans not to capitulate to Southern demands, to recognize slavery as being right, but to stand by our duty fearlessly and effectively. Now, first of all, he does attack Taney's position on the slavery extension issue, and he mentions Douglas, but he doesn't do a very good job, really, of taking either apart. At all. He doesn't attack substantive due due process, which is easy to attack. And he doesn't ever take down the Tenth Amendment argument. When I'll get into all this, he doesn't do either one of those things. This is a typical Lincoln speech full of sound and fury signifying nothing. It it really is um, a, a problematic speech because there's nothing in it. It's shallow. It's hollow. It means nothing. Now, he was right about some things, and I'll get into all this, okay? So I'm actually going to give Lincoln credit, and I'm going to talk about this within the context of the time. So um, he begins, Mr. President, this is Lincoln now, Mr. President and fellow citizens of New York, the facts with, with which I shall d- deal this evening are mainly old and familiar, nor is there anything new in the general use I shall make of them. If there shall be any novelty, it will be in the mode of presenting the facts and the inferences and observations following that presentation. In his speech last autumn at Columbus, Ohio, as reported in the New York Times, Senator Douglas said, quote, Our fathers, when they framed the government under which we live, understood this question just as well and even better than we do now. Lincoln continues, I fully endorse this, and I adopt it as a text for this discourse. I so adopt it because it furnishes a precise and an agreed starting point for a discussion between Republicans and that wing of the democracy headed by Senator Douglas. It simply leaves the inquiry... What was the understanding those fathers had of the question mentioned? And so the question they're talking about is slavery extension in the territories. So Lincoln is saying Stephen Douglas stood up um, in 1859 and said, uh, uh, look, uh, the founding fathers understood this issue better than any of us, and we should pay attention to them. So Lincoln says, yeah, I agree. Let's, Let's pay attention to the founding generation, the founding fathers. Let's see what they said about this issue. So this is an inquiry, a historical inquiry, uh, about the issue of slavery extension. He says, Who are our fathers that framed the Constitution? I suppose the 39 who signed the original document may be fairly called our fathers who framed that part of the present government. It is almost exactly true to say that they framed it, and it is altogether true to say that, that they fairly represented the opinion and sentiments of the whole nation at the time. Now, Let's just die. Let's just, as they say nowadays, unpack that one statement. They fairly represented the the 
opinion and sentiments of the whole nation at the time. Now, Lincoln's already operating from a fallacy that there's any kind of national government in 1787 or 1788. He's missing the entire ratification process. Just by focusing on 39 individuals, he doesn't give uh, the, the just credence to those who were the ratifiers. There were more of them than there were of the men who signed the document. He doesn't pay attention to the people that refused to sign the document or that attended in Philadelphia and never signed the document. None of those people are consulted. He consults 39 men, and he uses their voting records to show that this is what they thought about the particular issue of slavery extension in the territories. It is a weak, weak position. You're going to draw conclusions from 39 people. So already from the beginning, his position is flawed. Now, I think that um, you can say out of these 39 people, this is what they said, but are they truly representative of the entire founding generation? No, not at all. This is why the Constitution was so, uh, so vehemently opposed by a large number of people in all the states, except maybe Delaware, um, uh, South Carolina, didn't have a large opposition, some. Uh, but you know, you're looking at states that uh, some of the smaller states didn't have a lot of opposition to it. But most of the states did. I mean, Virginia had substantial opposition. So did Pennsylvania. So did New York. So did Massachusetts. So did North Carolina. Even Connecticut had fairly sizable opposition. So uh, to, to say that we're just going to base this entire argument on 39 people is weak from the beginning. And plus, again, we didn't have a nation at that time. They weren't representative of the people at large in the states, the people of the states at all. Lincoln continues, their names being familiar to nearly all and accessible to quite all need not now be repeated. I take these 39 for the present as being our fathers who framed the government under which we live. So you could say that these are the framers. So the framers... Um, if you just, I mean, so he's narrowly interpreting what Stephen Douglas said. The man who framed it. Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, that's fine. We can go with that position. But Lincoln expanded it out one sentence and then contracted it again. This is, this is artful sophistry, but it's not very good uh, logically. Um, Lincoln continues, let us now inquire whether the 39 or any of them ever acted upon this question. And if they did, how they acted upon it, how they expressed that better understanding. So he's getting into now what they said about slavery extension in the territories. Um, he said in 1784, three years before the Constitution, the United States then owning the Northwest Territory and no other, the Congress of the Confederation had before them the question of prohibiting slavery in that territory. And four of the 39 who afterwards framed the Constitution were in that Congress and voted on the question. Of these, Roger Sherman, Thomas Mifflin, and Hugh Williamson voted for the pro prohibition, thus showing that, in their understanding, no line dividing local from federal authority, nor anything else, properly forbade the federal government to control as to slavery in federal territory. The other four, James McHenry, voted against the proposition, showing that, for some cause, he thought it improper to vote for it. Now, again, let's unpack this sentence. Again, Lincoln being sophisticated in his obfuscation of the issue. He's saying that these three people, Sherman, Mifflin, and Williamson, voted for it because 
they believed that this was an issue that was for the federal government alone, that this is why they did it. No dividing line uh, from federal authority nor anything else properly pervade the federal government to control us to slavery in federal territory. The other of the four, James McHenry, voted against the proposition, showing that for some cause he thought it improper to vote for it. For some cause. Well, why can't you say the three for some cause voted for it? But no, he's, he's saying they voted for it for this particular reason. But this other yokel out here, McHenry from Maryland, no. Nah. I don't know. He voted against it for some cause, some reason. Maybe because he thought it was uh, illegal. I don't know. For some cause. Uh, so this is an inconsistent argument on Lincoln's part. It's awful. Um, he continues later on, The question of federal control of slavery in the territories seems not to have been directly before the convention which framed the original Constitution, and hence it is not recorded that the 39 or any of them, while engaged on that instrument, expressed any opinion on that precise question. Well, this is true. Uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone talking about the territories. What we do have, of course, is the Constitution say that the Congress can make all needful rules and regulations for the common property or territory of the United States government. All needful rules and regulations. Um, it does say that. Um, it, it does say that the Congress can make... Well, I, I, I take that back. Um, I step back there for a second. It says that about the territory that's going to become Washington, D.C., and it says that the Congress can make can regulate uh, the territories. And so because it says the Congress can regulate the territories, then therefore they believe the Congress can regulate slavery in the territories. Now, the strongest argument against an unlimited use of municipal power, which is what we're talking about here, is the 10th Amendment. Because the powers of the general government are confined by the powers granted or delegated to that document or delegated to the Congress by the states in Article 1. If that doesn't say they what they can do that power there, then they can't do it. That's the Douglas position, and I think the strongest position, one that Lincoln never confronts directly. Now, he says because these people voted on it, obviously they thought they could do this. But just because they voted on it doesn't mean it was constitutional. I mean, that's like, and of course, Lincoln would agree that the bank was constitutional. Just because people said we're going to have a bank doesn't mean it's constitutional. Just because people said we're going to have Obamacare doesn't mean it's constitutional. It means that people thought they could get away with it for whatever reason. As he says, for some cause, they thought they needed it. For some cause. For some cause. Not legally. Not because it should have been done, but because for some cause. I mean, we can use the same argument back on Lincoln. Well, for some cause... They thought they should vote for a Bank of the United States for some cause, even though it's not in the Constitution. But for some cause, they thought they should do it. And those that did, well, they voted against it for this reason. Well, it works both ways, honest Abe. I guess you don't seem to get that. In 1789, he says, by the first Congress, which sat under the Constitution, an act was passed to enforce the ordinances of 87, including the prohibition of slavery in the Northwestern Territory. The bill for this act was reported by one of the 39, Thomas Fitzsimmons, then a member of the House of Representatives from Pennsylvania. It went through all the stages without a word of opposition and finally passed both branches without yeas and nays, which is equivalent to unanimous passage. Um, so he's reading into this, and of course we don't really have any debates from this early, these early Congresses. Uh, the Senate met in secret. We don't know what went on. 
So there's not a whole lot of information out there. The baits are, are hard to come by um, or not existent. So we don't really know what happened. Lincoln doesn't really know what happened. So here he's being, again, artful in his deception. Um, continues. He goes on to talk about the Louisiana Purchase. He talks about um, the fact that North Carolina ceded land to the general government, and there was some discussion about slavery and that, and that uh, there was an express prohibition uh, against interfering with slavery there. Um, and then he goes on to 1803. He says... Excuse me. In 1803, the federal government purchased the Louisiana country. Our former territorial acquisitions came from certain came from certain of our own states, but this Louisiana country was acquired from a foreign nation. In 1804, Congress gave a territorial organization that part of it, which now constitutes the state of Louisiana. New Orleans, lying within that part, was an old and comparatively large city. There were other considerable towns and settlements, and slavery was extensively and thoroughly intermingled with the people. Congress did not, in the Territorial Act, prohibit slavery. But they did interfere with it, take control of it, in a more marked and extensive way than they did in the case of Mississippi. The substance of the provision therein made in relation to slaves was, first, that no slave should be imported into the territory from foreign parts. Second, that no slave should be carried into it who had been imported into the United States since the first day of May 1798. And third, that no slave be carried into it except by the owner and for his own use as a settler, the penalty in all cases being a fine upon the violator of the law and freedom to the slave. Now, what we're looking at here, of course, is congressional power over international trade. And we know that Congress, within just a few years after this, will prohibit the slave trade. So they're already working uh, in some ways. And we could, we could debate whether these were constitutional or not. But this is, this is not regulation of a territory, so to speak, uh, but regulation of people going in. Well, I mean, you could say they're going into the territory, but you can't import a slave from foreign parts. So you can't. You can't buy a slave from Spain and say, I'm going to bring him into Louisiana. That's international trade. It's not necessarily regulating the territory. Um, you can't take a slave in there that's uh, imported after 1798. So what they're trying to do is work on the international slave trade, which certainly people thought was the worst part of the institution in the South as well. Um, so there you have it. This act, he says, was also passed without yeas and nays. In the Congress which passed it, there were two of the 39. They were Abraham Baldwin and Jonathan Dayton. As stated in the case of Mississippi, it is probable that both voted for it. They would not have allowed it to pass without recording their opposition to it, if, in their understanding, it violated either the line properly dividing local and federal authority or any provision of the Constitution. Well, that's not necessarily true. I mean, people don't say things when they think stuff violates the Constitution all the time. In 1819-20 came and passed the Missouri Question, Many votes were taken by yeas and nays in both branches of Congress upon the various phases of the general question. Two of the 39, Rufus King and Charles Pinckney, were members of that Congress. Uh, Mr. King steadily voted for slavery prohibition and against all compromises, while Mr. Pinckney has steadily voted against slavery prohibition and against all compromises. By this, Mr. King showed that, in his understanding, no line dividing local from federal authority nor anything in the Constitution was violated by Congress prohibiting slavery in the federal territory. While Mr. Pinckney, by his votes, showed that, in his understanding, there was some sufficient reason for opposing such prohibition in that case. So, again, Mr. King, Rufus King is rock solid, but Pinckney, there's just some sufficient reason. How about the Constitution? 
How about the Constitution, Abe? Uh, this particular speech is, it wears on you. It wears on you. Uh, he continues later on, It therefore would be unsafe to set down even the two who voted against the prohibition as having done so because, in their understanding, any proper division of local from federal authority or anything in the Constitution forbade the federal government to control as to slavery in federal territory. Um, here he's talking about uh, the total group. But he's saying the two people that voted against it, you really can't even say that they were doing this out of any principled constitutional reason. He says the remaining 16 of the 39, so far, so far as I've discovered, have left no record of their understanding upon the direct question of federal control of slavery in the federal territories. But there's much reason to believe that their understanding upon that question would not have appeared different from that of the other their 23 compeers had it been manifested at all. Um, then he makes an insinuation. He says, what about all the other people? Well, if they had acted at all, they probably would have acted just as the 23 did. So the people that he doesn't consult, people like Dr. Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, Governor Morris, they all would have said, hey, we agree with these people that say we can prohibit slavery in the territories. Uh, I think you can make a case for Hamilton and Morris. They're nationalists. <laughs> They're nationalists. Of course they would say that. Um... So he says, clear majority would have voted for a slavery restriction. A clear majority. Because they would have said the Congress has the power to legislate for slavery in the territories. Now, then he gets into saying, uh, the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott case plant themselves upon the Fifth Amendment, which provides that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, while Senator Douglas and his peculiar adherents plant themselves upon the Tenth Amendment, providing that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution are reserved to the states respectfully or to the people. His peculiar adherence, peculiar adherence, they're not just normal, they're peculiar. Like, I mean, listen to the language and what Lincoln is doing here. This is, a, this is a hack speech, full of holes, and yet is considered one of his best. Um, I want to get into some of the other stuff because he's he's critical of, of course, these positions. But as I said before, he never really takes down Douglas and his position on the Tenth Amendment. He never really takes down Tawney. Tawney's easier. But uh, Douglas and this Tenth Amendment position, it's very hard to take that down. That's peculiar. You see, he's, he's, it's an attack on the person, a simple Fallacy 101. Logical fallacy 101. You attack the person. You attack the people that would believe it. Peculiar people. They're just peculiar. Now, that peculiar could mean just people that believe in Douglas. Not odd peculiar, but just people that are peculiar to his belief of the Tenth Amendment. It could be that. Um, but we don't really know from how it's read in the speech. He says, Lincoln continues, but enough. Let all believe that our fathers who framed the government under which we live understood this question just as well and even better than we do now speak as they spoke and act as they acted upon it. This is all Republicans ask, all Republicans desire in relation to slavery. As those fathers marked it, so let it be again marked, not as an evil to be extended, not as an, as an evil not to be extended, excuse me, 
but to be tolerated and protected only because of and so far as its actual presence among us makes that toleration and protection a necessity. That all the guarantees those fathers gave to it be not grudgingly but fully and fairly maintained. For this Republicans contend, and with this, so far as I know or believe, they will be content. So Lincoln is outlining here something he later said. Look, we have no intention of interfering with slavery that already exists. We just say slavery cannot extend into the territories. That's all we're saying. That's all we're saying. It's the same thing the founding generation said. Is it? Is it? He goes on to uh, criticize the Democrats who say that the Republican Party is sectional. He says, are we sectional? No, I don't. We deny we're sectional. The burden of proof is on them to say we're sectional. We don't have any votes down there, but what happened? We had a few votes, and we're no longer sectional. We're no longer a sectional party. But the positions that you advanced found only favor in the North for the most part. Now, not everything. There were Southerners who favored tariffs and federally funded internal improvements and central banking and all those things. Um, but he's saying that uh, Republicans are actually well accepted in the South and that uh, essentially there's no, the Republican Party is not sectional, it's a national party. This is just fairy tale, fantasy land for Abraham Lincoln. It's completely untrue. Uh, you charge, he says, you charge that we stir up insurrections among your slaves. We deny it. And what is your proof? Harper's Ferry, John Brown. John Brown was no Republican. And you have failed to implicate a single Republican in the Harper's Ferry enterprise. If any member of our party is guilty in that matter, you know it or you do not know it. If you do know it, you are inexcusable for not designating the man and proving the fact. If you do not know it, you are inexcusable for asserting it, especially for persisting in the assertion after you have tried and failed to make the proof. You need to be told that persisting in a charge which one does not know to be true is simply malicious slander. Gee, this is rich coming from the guy that lies all the time. But let's just dissect that for a minute. A minute. Of the six men who funded John Brown, five were clearly Republicans. The one, Garrett Smith, um, was a principled abolitionist, one that was actually friends <clears throat> with Lysander Spooner, and uh, was certainly someone uh, I think is an honorable man. Uh, but he did help fund John Brown. John Brown was a, was a murdering maniac. Um, so you can be criticized. You can criticize him for that. Uh, but Garrett Smith actually helped put up the money to get Jefferson Davis out of prison at one point. But I mean, he leaned Republican. All these people were Republicans. Uh, one of the things he says that's uh, interesting. He said John Brown's effort was peculiar. It was not a slave insurrection. It was an attempt by white men to get up a revolt among slaves, in which the slaves refused to participate. In fact, it was so absurd that the slaves, with all their ignorance, saw plainly enough it could not succeed. So here he's taking a racial slap. Are we going to, Abraham Lincoln's a racist. We're going to take down his statue? I think we should. But uh, are we going to do it? He's taking a slap at slaves, African Americans. Uh, he says that has a somewhat reckless sound. He's talking about secession. But are we palliated? If not fully justified, were we proposing, by the mere force of numbers, to deprive you of some right plainly written down in the Constitution? We were proposing no such thing. So he's saying, look, if Southerners agitate secession, they would be justified if we were trying to do something that would ruin the Constitution. But we're not trying to do that. Well, at least not on the surface. We know in Reconstruction and Recreation they did do that. He says, when you make these declarations, you have a specific and well-understood allusion to an assumed constitutional right of yours to take slaves into the federal territories and to hold them there as property. 
but no such right is specifically written on the Constitution. That instrument is literally silent about any such right. We, on the contrary, deny that such a right is any existence in the Constitution except by implication. But there's no, nothing saying that they can't bring their slaves in the territory either. Uh, so Lincoln is, again, playing fast and loose with the facts here. Um, in some ways, this is just idiotically stupid. Now, he says, your purpose, then, plainly stated, is that you will destroy the government. The South never said they destroy the government. They would leave the Union. The government would still exist. The United States government still existed during the war. Lincoln still stayed president. We still a Supreme Court, a Congress. Still all that stuff. So the government wasn't destroyed. You just had fewer states in it. Fewer states in the Union. What's been destroyed? What's been destroyed? He goes into the, to the Dred Scott decision. This is an interesting argument against Dred Scott. He says, um, when I say the decision was made in a short way, I mean it was made in a divided court by a bare majority of judges, and they not quite agreeing with one another in the reasonings of making it. That it is so made that its avowed supporters disagree with one another about its meaning, and it was mainly based upon a mistaken statement of fact, the statement in the opinion that the right of property in a slave is distinctly and expressly affirmed in the Constitution. Now, uh, we could talk about this with other Supreme Court decisions. It was five to four. It was you know six to three. So that means that this dissent should be listened to as well. Sounds good to me most of the time, but um, that's not how we do it. Um, then, of course, he blames the South later on for starting the war. Um, he says, will it safely, will it safe, I'm sorry, will it satisfy them if in the future we have nothing to do with invasions and insurrections? We know it will not. We so know because we know we will never had anything to do with the invasions and insurrections, and yet the total abstaining does not exempt us from the change or the charge of that denunciation. So he's sensitive here. The Republican Party is under attack, and rightfully so, because people look at it and say this thing is corrupt. Now, I want to get into the the close. First of all, he never, he never got into the Tenth Amendment argument. He can't. He can't. The only thing he can say is, well, they passed these laws, so clearly they thought that uh, you know we have municipal powers. Now, there were people in the United States, even in the South, that thought this was the case. The government had municipal powers, which were undefined. And that included what they could do in the territories. I disagree. I think the powers were always confined by Article 1, Section, uh, by, first of all, the 10th Amendment, but also Article 1, Section 8 were the powers of Congress. That's it. It was always designed that way. The 10th Amendment merely codified that. But Lincoln never took apart that argument. He never made any argument against that. So if it doesn't say Congress can regulate slavery in any particular way, it says it can prohibit the international slave trade. But if it can't regulate slavery in any particular way, how is it to regulate slavery in the Western territories? They have no power to do so. That's all Douglas is saying. And that, that, that position is very much unanswerable. It's unanswerable. So Lincoln um, closes in a rhetorical flourish, you know, using some very flowery language that I don't really want to read. Uh, but this speech is nothing short of sophistry. 
Yeah, it got him a great applause of the day. It was widely printed. People read it. Oh, look at this guy. Abraham Lincoln, he's great. Hey, babe, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. Uh, we're still several uh, months away from the election, about nine months at this point. Lincoln is trying to gear up to make sure he's going to win. He's attacking Stephen Douglas. Uh, he's attacking popular sovereignty. Uh, he's attacking, I mean, eventually he'll attack the American financial system. Uh, some of the Secret Six members, one would eventually uh, <laughs> become an ardent communist. I mean, these people were not well-liked, and these are the people that are helping fund Abraham Lincoln's campaign and providing literature for Abraham Lincoln to go read at speeches and campaign stops. Um, there's no way to describe the speech but garbage. It really is garbage. But if you want to read what Lincoln was thinking, it's a good place to start. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I will see you next time. Mm-hmm.